So do, do whatever you need to do to get yourself in this space. Take a deep breath. Close your eyes if that helps. Good morning. And let's just be here. Our goal is to be present and open and awake. And um, I've been using this. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. And may grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be in our ends and at our departing. So I hope you find what you came here looking for today. And if not, maybe you find something that you weren't looking for, but will be useful information and knowledge that you can use to grow in peace and love and joy. And uh, just to be clear, over and over and over, we honor the values of love and honesty and freedom in, in this place. So um, I want to say that um, next week, um, I am really excited about the fact that Dr. Dawson Taylor is going to be here to speak. Dawson Taylor, I've known for a long time, <clears throat> and <clears throat> I will be here to introduce him. Dawson Taylor is, uh, it looks like, on his way to become the senior pastor of a church in, in, in Boston, but he's going to be talking about um, what does it mean to be a progressive Christian in the era of church divide. And this is specifically addressed to what's been happening in the United Methodist Church. And Dawson's credentials are many, uh, but for a long time, he was the executive or senior pastor of the Cathedral of Hope United Church of Christ in Dallas, which uh, is the largest <clears throat> LBGTQ plus congregation in the world. So um, Dawson's going to be here next, next week. He's a funny guy, and, and um, I really like him a lot. And we, we need that message in light of what has happened in the, the UMC. So no matter who you are or where you are in your spiritual journey. So I want to begin today by showing you a brief video. You've got to pay very close attention to the screen. I, I don't think I'm going to be able to get the closed cat caption up. Uh, it does have closed captions on it, so you're going to have to listen. And um, some of you may think that this video has absolutely nothing to do with today's class. And some of you may think that it has absolutely everything to do with today's class. So watch the monitors, listen very carefully. Are you kidding? Ah, it's missing all the parts created by women. Wow, whose great idea was that? 
This Women's History Month, Ford salutes the visionary automotive work by women past, present, and future. Don't see something like that in church every day. Thank you, Stephanie Warfield, for um, doing that. So I'm calling this time today good news, um, the religion of no escape. So don't leave or you'll miss it. Don't leave physically, we'll notice. Um, don't leave mentally, you can do that, but uh, you'll be missing a great opportunity just to be here and to, to, pr to practice. Um, in spite of the fact that we don't like to be reminded of what are called the five remembrances, they remain as true as the law of gravity. We are of the nature to grow old. We are of the nature to have ill health. We are of the nature to die. All that is dear to us and everyone we love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. Our actions are our true belongings. We cannot escape the consequences of our actions. One of my colleagues is a poet, and um, he writes these wonderful poems accompanied by photographs. And uh, in the most recent poem I saw of his, he has a photograph of somebody having written the words, I love you in the sand at the beach so you know that the tide is going to come in and wash it away. And he writes, love can do many marvelous things, but even agape love cannot negate, negate the right to reap the seeds we sow. That applies to that last of the fifth remembrances. So maybe this is your first time to attend Ordinary Life. If so, welcome. Um, Maybe you've been a long-time attendee. If so, thank you. Whatever demographic you fall into, um, it, it may appear to you that the teachings offered in Ordinary Life are in no particular order. <laughs> Neither is life. Though usually there is, not always, Usually there's a progression in our experience of the realities contained in these five remembrances. They come from Buddhism, by the way. There's no exception to them. And all along the way, from right now until that last line in that Celtic prayer I used at the beginning, the time of our departing, we don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know. You don't have a clue. So each and every one of us, including your teacher, falls for the illusion that we are either an exception to these things or that in some way we can control these things. We can have some influence over them. But then, wham, out of the blue comes something that sets us back on our heels. It's usually some kind of catastrophe, a death, a divorce, an illness, an accident. I heard the story of a 47-year-old woman who has a heart attack, and she drops dead. They rush her to the hospital, and actually they're able to revive her. But in that interim between the time that they thought she was dead and they 
revived her. She had one of these out-of-body experiences kind of thing. And, and she sees this white light and all the stuff that you've read about, sees this benevolent, loving creature whom she assumes is God, and she's very confused. And she asks, what is this? Is this it? Am I dead? And um, the benevolent voice says, no. This is, however, a warning. You have another good 30 years. Use them wisely. So as she is recovering from the event in the hospital, she has time to think about her life and how she wants to live that life in the future. She's a quite wealthy woman. She is unattached. She has no children. So she arranges to be transported to another hospital where she can have some recuperative care. She has some cosmetic surgery done. She has a facelift, breast augmentation, tummy tuck, liposuction. She consults a dietitian and begins to um, lose weight, the considerable weight that contributed to her heart attack. She has a beauty consultation and completely redoes the way she uses makeup. She has new hairstyle, new hair color. She hired a clothes consultant, gets an entirely new wardrobe. She has completely remade herself. And what's more, she has learned enough Spanish so that when she leaves the hospital, she can enter volunteer time and helping in the immigration crisis, which is the way she wants to spend the remainder of her time. So when she's ready to go home, she calls her private driver to pick her up. And as she's walking to the waiting car, she's hit by an ambulance that is rushing to the hospital. And this time she really is killed. And as she goes into the presence of God, she loudly complains, what the hell? I thought you said I had another good 30 years. And God looks up from whatever God is doing and furrows his brow and says, good grief. I didn't recognize you. point of class today, one of them is that we recognize ourselves. And though there is no apparent order in these talks, there is actually a plan and there's a goal. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But just to remind you, because repetition is the mother of mastery, I've been talking about awareness for some time now. Awareness is the first step on the door through which we pass on the human journey to wholeness. And it's a journey only in the sense that we are increasingly aware of our identity, that self, and that there is nothing for us to attain because we already have that for which we are seeking. And as we expand our awareness, the goal is to be self-consciously, not ego-consciously, present to presence, capital P. And to do this in an open, honest way, with the willingness to change our behavior and our lives to conform more and more to what Paul called the mind of Christ. Have this mind in you, which was in the mind of Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we ended up, you remember, talking about Carl Jung's disturbing description of God, which is um, not a complete description, but a good one, 
where Carl Jung says, to this day, God is the name by which I designate all things which cross my willful path violently and recklessly, all things which upset my subjective views, plans, and intentions, and change the course of my life for better or worse. I don't know how you define God, but that's an interesting definition. So what do we have on the table? We have three things to deal with. Here's a great Venn diagram. We have the self. We have the other. And then we, uh, the other in this uh, not only includes all other others, but the big other is God, presence. And then we have the context in which this awareness occurs. Now, I could not offer you, and I'll elaborate on this later today, I could not offer you a better spiritual practice or a mantra than to focus on those first two aspects of that diagram and keep their relationship in front of you. And I'm, I'm going to suggest a way you do that later today. This, this is a practice, the self and other, that at least in the Christian tradition is almost as old as the movement itself. It's a process of always asking and never claiming to know who am I and who are you? Who am I? Who are you? Who am I? Who are you? If we are who we are in God, no more, no less. And if Thomas Merton is correct in saying that to know the self is to know God and to truly know God is to know the self, then that agenda is enough for us. Now, the complexity comes when you take into consideration that third circle, and that is that of our context. And that's what I want to elaborate a little bit on today as we prepare to move more deeply into the person and teachings of Jesus as we go forward. This thing of context, our context because we are affected by it all the time. No matter how I try not to be exposed to much of the news, I can't avoid being exposed to it in, in some ways. <clears throat> Back during the heady days of the 60s, when a lot of my thinking got shaped, I was struck by some words by a man named John Gardner. John Gardner was Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare in the LBJ administration. And he founded a group called Common Cause. Some of you may be old enough to remember that. Common Cause was an organization that came about primarily to protest the war in Vietnam and to see what could be done to stop the war in Vietnam. And then it led on to uh, the reform of politics. And you can see how very successful that movement has been. Anyway, um, he wrote a book entitled Excellence, and in that book he wrote, the society that scorns excellence in plumbing because plumbing is a humble activity and tolerates shoddiness in philosophy because it is an exalted activity will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy. Neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water. I'm a theological plumber, and we want to do good plumbing in, in here. How we think, how we see, 
and particularly how we see and think with those qualities of love and honesty determines the quality of our behavior, both globally and locally. So we need an empowering, liberating spirituality to deal with these things on almost <clears throat> every level. And I keep bringing up over and over because it needs to be, I need to be reminded, and I assume you do too, that what's missing from our thinking very often are the qualities of love and honesty. Love and honesty. Out there in the, in the public media, what is getting attention right this minute? The whole issue of honesty or truth-telling. So if Jung's definition of God is correct, and though it is not complete, I believe it is, it offers us some hope in the light that our current circumstances of chaos and divisiveness offer us an excellent opportunity to do good theological, philosophical plumbing. So we've got to face the realistic fact that we live in a context where there is an adversarial sense of mistrust almost everywhere you look. There are polarizing ideologies that are becoming more and more difficult to resolve. And this is to the detriment of our greater society. I'm going to give you one example. It's this word. You know where this word came from? Do you? This originated in African-American English, and it means one thing. It means an awareness of racial and social injustice. That's all it means. But it is a word that has been appropriated by the political right to use as a weapon, like a big stick, to attack any conversation around injustices and inequalities in American history and society. The way they use the word is as if it's a nasty four-letter word. And many of you just thought of all the other four-letter words. <laughs> but you have probably noticed how there is no level of shame in how low some politicians and television personalities will go in warning people about the dangers of wokeness. Recently, a prominent politician, whom I am not going to name, though she is running for president, <laughs> recently said, quote, wokeness is a virus more dangerous than any pandemic. Really? How many people have died of wokeness compared to how many people died of COVID? I checked on the internet while I was writing this class this week. On the day that I checked, there were 16,000 people in the hospital because of COVID right now. I don't think anybody's been admitted to the hospital with a diagnosis of wokeness. But this is an example of what I mean by shallow thinking. We desperately need 
to develop the educational, social, political skills to engage divergent opinions so that we can, using John Garner's phrase, come together to work for common cause. We don't have to agree on our ideologies as long as we agree on doing what is good for everybody. Now, I personally believe that one of the reasons we are in the crises, plural, we are in, is because we have not educated enough people well. Um, I've never understood. It has never registered in my brain. Maybe one of you can explain to me why it is that when we need as a public to cut taxes, the first place we go is to education. Because in the long run, that hurts everybody. We need an educated youth to come up so that they can take responsible places. But oh, we cut teacher salaries and we cut benefits and we cut this and that. I've never understood that. And we need to educate a lot of people about cosmological worldview. We live in a huge field of energy. But most people think it's very small, just to their tribe. That worldview that we live in is as true as the five remembrances. They're just as true as the law of gravity. Everyone and everything is connected. And so fragmented information and knowledge is a form of ignorance. As I look back on how we have handled the COVID pandemic, I think this has been the thing that's missing. I think, for example, the current thing about the origin of the virus, did it come from a lab? Did it come from encroachment of human activity onto natural habitat? Um, what's missing is transparency, whatever. What's missing is living cooperatively, whatever. And I think this is the new central question of religious spiritual life. How do we relate to life right here right now, not to something later, not something elsewhere, but right here. Now, the reason I'm talking about this today is because we are immersed in two religions. Most of us have some experience in the, in the Christian religion, either positively or negatively growing up, and we are all affected by the religion of our culture, which is consumerism. I'll start with the Christian religion. For 2,000 years, almost, the Christian faith that has been communicated to people is one of escape. You are going to hell unless you believe so-and-so, so believe so-and-so, or join our group so that then you won't go to hell. And we overlook the fact that for most people, hell is right here, right now. I remember in, in when I was growing up in the Baptist church with the one Jesus went to when he was a boy. <laughs> At summer camp, we sang a song, and I'll bet you there are people in this crowd today who know it. 
This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then, Lord, what will I do? And it goes on until you walk down to the front of the church and accept Jesus as your personal Savior, and then you're safe. And the promise is an afterlife, not life here. Now, the religion of our culture is consumerism, right? And the, the, the threat of consumerism is you're not going to be happy unless and until you buy, get, obtain, look, have, weigh, whatever. So that's the reason I'm calling there is good news in that there's no escape. This is it. Now, Sartre wrote a book called uh, No Escape Hills Other People. It's a play, actually, but uh, this is it. And we'll talk sometime about how on one side is heaven and on the other side is hell, if you want to use those words, but they're the same coin. We need a religion and spirituality of engagement. Engagement with each other, engagement with life, engagement with the concrete circumstances of our social existence. So in the process of trying to teach about the larger world, I'm going to be saying some things. Um, and actually, this is how uh, seven I am on the Enneagram. I started writing the class I'm going to teach two weeks from today this morning. Oh, well, anyway. Anyway, in, in, in moving in that direction, I just want to give you a warning. I'm going to be saying some things that some of you, uh, or it's going to go against what some of you have heard all your lives and maybe believe. Um, just hear me out, and if we need to have a bigger conversation about some of these things later on, um, we can do it. For example, uh, one of the things that I want to say is that Jesus did not die to save you from your sins of sending you to hell. That is not what Jesus is about. Now, I'm going to come back to that, not only today, but also later in this series. But <clears throat> I'm arguing for a new understanding of religion. I'm even arguing maybe for a new theology. I want to be clear about the fact that there is no religion that will save you. You can believe in Jesus. You can claim the Bible is literally true. You can keep kosher. You can do sitting meditation. You can walk to Mecca backward on your hands. Doesn't matter what you do. No religion will save you. Now, why is that? Why would I say that? Well, I say it for two major reasons. First of all, all religions are human constructs. And no human system can contain what we call reality. Reality contains us. We want, and this is what the church has been so good at, 
We want to put God in a box. We want to take those five remembrances and either put them out of sight or in our control. Then close the lid, and we will open that box when it's convenient for us, when we want to, when we feel safe. Lord, we love to be in control. And the function of a religion that's wise and useful, and this was what Jesus was about, was to get people to put themselves in God's box, not God in our box. See the difference? Now, this is good news to me because right now we are in the heart of sacred mystery. You do not have to die to go to heaven. Now, if you don't like the people who are in heaven with you, <laughs> you might do some work on befriending them and getting to know them because we all, every single one of us, want the same thing. We want to enjoy our lives. We want to enjoy our families. We want to live in peace. We want to have a good bed to sleep in at night and wake up and have a shot at the future. That's what all we, that's all, we all want that. No religion is going to save you. That's first. Because we make religions. Always have. And we have to come, I, just keep that in mind for a time being. Second thing is you don't need saving. What we need is clarity about our true identity. One of the great things that grew out of that conversation with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, which goes back to the, the discoveries of what's called the first axial age, is that if we treat each other like we want to be treated, we will have the world we want to live in. That's simple, that complicated. So what we need is to be on a path of increasing our awareness about our identity, about ourselves, about each other. I don't mean when I say you don't need saving that we don't have work to do. We do. Um, and by the way, if you think that what I just said didn't apply to you, you're probably the one that has the most work to do. <laughs> now, once you know these two things about religion, that we don't need saving, then uh, what we need is waking up. Then having a religion can be fun. It can even be useful. You can use it in your spiritual practice. You can use it to wake up. You can use it for accountability. But just don't think it does something to you that came down from heaven. We created it. We make it. And at times we have to modify it. Now, <clears throat> what I'm teaching right now is humanly constructed. And consequently, what I'm teaching right now is tentative. And the problem with the church is that we don't like tentative stuff. We want stuff nailed down. I want to know for sure. Now, that's the result of the, the current conflict in the United Methodist Church between those who want to keep things nailed down to the way they think things ought to be between those who are more open to a more progressive, flexible, changing point of view. We have to change our minds in light of our new experiences. Remember, awareness is a key. <clears throat> Sometimes I'll recall a story 
that I told in here, and I can't remember it exactly. And then I can't remember when it was. I don't want to tell it too frequently because if I do, you'll remember it and think he's not doing his work. So I have a great search program on my computer that will allow me to put in a few words and I go back and see when did I tell the story about the intern in the hospital or whatever it was. And I find a story. I'll go back and I'll find it embedded in a talk that I gave, say, 15 years ago. Oh, God, so embarrassing. Fifteen years ago in that talk, I sounded like I knew what I was talking about. But when I look at it, it's embarrassing. I wouldn't say that now. And 15 years from now, I'll look back on this talk with the same feeling. Because our context change. We change. My, My conclusions were as culturally bound then as they are right now. So it's not nailed down. It has to be flexible. It has to be fluid, progressive, changing, becoming, just like we are in our own living and life. So there's a difference between thinking theologically and pronouncing dogma. And much of the havoc created by religion has been done by those who proclaim they got the truth, and in order to be saved, you need to embrace my truth, whatever that means. I do think that we all have the awesome, wonderful opportunity to engage in the wonderment of who God is. The wonderment, and the wonderment of who we are. We just don't have the right to impose what we discover on somebody else. Now, if each of us could admit the limits caused by our shortcomings... Wouldn't we live in a more peaceful and just world? So if Jesus didn't die for your sins, what was he about? And I'm next in two weeks going to really get into that. We're heading in that territory. Jesus did not have a set of beliefs he wanted to give people. What he had was an awakened attitude that he wanted to communicate to people. An awakened attitude about his own identity. I have discovered that I am a child of God, and so are you. Now, in light of that, this is what I think that means. Love God and love your neighbor. Somebody came up and said, "Uh, what the heck are you talking about? This deviates from our Jewish tradition. He said, well, in the Jewish tradition, it says love God and love your neighbor. Yeah, but who's my neighbor? And so Jesus, one of the unique things about Jesus is that he had this uncanny ability to craft a story. Not teach dogma, dogma, to craft a story that just wormed its way right into people's heads and hearts. There was a guy going down from Jericho to Jerusalem and he fell among the thieves. And this Samaritan came by and treated him. Who do you think was neighbor? So Jesus challenged those who were blind to the essence of their humanity, and uh, just as he did with that person. And the challenge was love. Do love in action. <clears throat> now, I hope 
that you don't take any take my word for any of this. Check it out. Go read for yourself. Read Marcus Borg, and when we start talking about Jesus, I'm going to let you know that my plan is to begin teaching through this book. This is uh, The Gospel According to Jesus by Stephen Mitchell. And uh, this book is worth the introduction alone to get something into idea about Jesus. When Marcus Borg started writing about Jesus, it's a whole different culture and a whole different part of the world. Marcus was working in the Pacific Northwest at the time in a public school. And he, he, he couldn't get away with saying the things that I just said about Jesus then. I think he could now. So what Marcus Borg did was he started differentiating between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. So as you could talk about the Jesus of history and not mess with somebody's understanding of Jesus come down from God, Christ concept. But as we have made progress in biblical studies, archaeological studies, and other things, we're now beginning to get a different, better, more accurate picture of Jesus. When I was in the seminary, we didn't have forensic archaeology. So we didn't have the tools to go back and look at soil samples taken from the time and the era where Jesus lived and bone fragments to do DNA studies to reconstruct what a person in that geographical era and that geological era looked like, but now we do. I guarantee you, Jesus didn't look like Holman's Christ. And we don't know what Jesus looked like, but we have a more approximate understanding, just as we do with what, Je what did Jesus really teach. We have a better idea about that than, than we do, used to. Um, you, you read the Jesus teachings, um, this is a, a worthy book to have in your library. The other one, which is going to soon be out of print, which you can get is The Gospel of Jesus that's edited by Robert Funk. It's a really little book, and I, you should have this in your library to read the teachings of Jesus about what the best contemporary scholarship says about this is what Jesus taught. That would be helpful to have in, in your library. And... and, uh, but, and where there are other teachings that go contrary to what we now understand to be the teachings of Jesus, we understand them to be the additions put in by the early church. Now, this is not my notes for today, but just think about, I'll, I'll give you the way I was taught in seminary, which didn't make it into churches, sadly. But... There's a story in, 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 um, the, in the Gospels about Jesus being driven into the wilderness for 40 days at the beginning, right after his baptism, and he's tempted by the devil. Everybody knows that story, right? It is three temptations. Who told that story? Did Jesus come out of the wilderness and say, hey, guys, let me show you something. I struggled with the devil, and boy, I beat him, and... People lived with Jesus long enough and loved him and were loved by him long enough that they began to get the essence of his message. And when other people of several generations, which not wasn't that long in that period, want to know about where did this guy come from, what did he teach, they began to tell stories about him. 
and they put these wonderful stories together about a wonderful storyteller. And so they got this metaphor about Jesus. And the metaphor, to make it a contemporary one, is that we live in this really dark room, and this guy comes in the room and throws on a light switch. It isn't a sin that we're in the dark room. We just can't see. And if that is our situation and someone comes and turns on their light, our response is, thank God you have saved me. I once was blind, but now I see amazing grace. So once our eyes are open and we begin to see, we realize that we are living in this immense world with all these other people, some who see and some who don't. So I want to give you a two-question spiritual practice that you can take away from here today. And you ask these questions over and over. You ask sacred mystery, who are you? And I suggest that you pick something to look at. For me, because it's my tradition and it satisfies me like salt does and the color blue does, I like icons. And I've got a couple that have been suggested to me by my own spiritual teacher that I look at uh, icons because I want this intimacy with God. And so, but you pick an image. Uh, Image from James Webb Telescope or a tree or whatever, doesn't matter, but pick an image and stick with it. And ask the question, sacred mystery, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Now, don't literalize the image, please. And don't imbue it with magic. Don't make it static either. It's just an image, it's a tool. And then, sacred mystery, who am I? And I suggest you pick a photograph of yourself when you were a child and keep it in some accessible place. And don't literalize that either. And don't make that static either, right? Because both sacred mystery and self are very, very fluid. And you know that that's true. Out there in the cosmos, um, there are these explosions that take place, and they give birth to new creativity in the cosmos, right? And 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 there are these explosions that take place that um, bring death. That's in the cosmos. That's in the human body too. You see an adolescent that you haven't seen for a while, and you say, uh, good grief, you've grown another foot, right? <clears throat> or you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, um, you have cancer. That's a growth out of control, too. Some creative, some destructive. So the, the goal of this practice is seeing clearly. It's not judging and not trying to change anything. It's just being with sacred mystery, who are you? Sacred mystery, who am I?
And, and Jesus' awakened attitude was this vision for a different world. So the society into which Jesus was born was founded on the oppression of the poor. Now, folks, we still have a long way to go in coming to terms with the foundation story of this country. And that's what the anti-woke stuff is about. We don't want to know that. We don't want to hear that. Just get that way out there. We're pure and pristine. But Jesus wouldn't relent. So he gathered a group of friends around him and called them his family. They cared for one another. They grew. They were joyful. They were loving. They were forgiving. They were generous. And by their living, they challenged the system <clears throat> so that the order, the established order, had him executed. And even after his death, they experienced his presence among them, and they called the story that they created good news. The gospel. That's what gospel means. And it wasn't about getting people to believe their dogma, but they were so attractive that people wanted to become part of what they were doing. So they helped people grow in their own understanding of life and love. Uh, Jesus never said you need to be better. What he said was you need to see, you need to hear. Sacred mystery, who are you? Sacred mystery, who am I? Now, <clears throat> you keep this up, and as the months and the years go by, I'm sorry, there is no quick fix. And this, again, is against the religion of our culture. Consumerism gets you just like that. And so is the religion of my youth. There's nothing to it. All you have to do is walk down the aisle, accept Jesus as your personal Savior. That's it. But you keep this up, and in months or years, um, you will see that the way you regard yourself and the way you regard others and the way you regard the other, other, will begin to change. We will learn to let go, and we will move beyond beliefs and doctrines to life and love. You know, sometimes I will joke in here <clears throat> that I hope I'm not making any of this too clear <clears throat> because it's a mystery, and it is. Words can't capture what I'm trying to, to say, but I do hope they might convey a, a bit of it. And I also hope that I'm not making this sound easy, because it isn't. But I do want to make it attractive and appealing. Um, and yet, at the same time, we gotta, we got to dig. we got to dig to find our identity and our deep self. And if we don't do this, we're going to get victimized by our culture out there. <clears throat> One of Carl Jung's lines that I try to stay mindful of is, the world will ask you who you are, and if you do not know, the world will tell you. So we have to dig to do the work the mystics call the true self. And if we don't do this work, what we do is we end up living superficially, being guided in our living by fear or greed, and that helps us fall victim to the culture. I am coming to believe 
that the increasing willingness for authoritarian political leaders to take over is being stirred by the same drives that create addictions in people. The word addiction and the word dictator have the same etymology. So when our deeper self, our true self, is ignored, there is this gaping hole that is filled by something else. And that something else might be mindless television, it could be games on your device, it could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be compulsive work, it could be conspiracy theories, it could be attachments that of any kind that paradoxically both numb us and excite us at the same time, like pornography. So true self-knowledge includes coming to know our shadow sides, those hidden, neglected aspects of our personality, both individually and collective. And if we don't pay attention to these, they, they take over and they become monsters. They make us monsters. And, and this is the, the kind of dynamic that was part of the rise of Fasism and Nazism in the 1930s. And it's present in our culture right now on the airwaves. You can see it in the news media. There are plenty of hucksters who are eager to take advantage of ignorant people and milk them of all their money and power. And frankly, I am more worried about the ignorant people than I am the people who are on the air. So a major lesson is don't be self-ignorant. And also go out there and let your light shine. Another teaching of Jesus. So I want these teachings to be in the lineage of Jesus. Jesus was a Jewish mystic in the prophetic tradition. The prophets were not people like psychics. You go 20, pay 20 bucks to to get them to tell your future. They were people who were wholeheartedly engaged in telling the people the truth. They were unfettered about that. And so we have prophets in our own time like that. Father Richard Rohr has been one. Jim Finley has been one. Thomas Merton, though deceased, is still one through his writings. Uh, Thomas Merton wrote, People are at liberty to be real or in, unreal, to be true or false. The choice is ours. So there's an avalanche of lies that pass for truth in the media today. To be on the path that Jesus walked is to walk a path of truth and truth-telling. So we'll have to wait to another time to examine the sociological, historical background of why it is that people who claim to be evangelical Christians can hold the Bible in one hand and hatred in the other at the same time. We'll have to explore that. There is a, there is a background to that. But to dress up falsities and lies as facts and truth is an insult to everyone's intelligence, particularly the people who tell it. Now, I'm going to close by, by sharing with you one of life's great paradoxes. I imagine that most of you would agree with everything I've said about truth-telling today. But the fact remains that truth is hard for every one of us. As I said, Jesus was a master of this in telling stories. And so if you're foolish enough to court and Enlightenment. I'm going to invite yourself to open yourself up to the story of Jesus and to the stories that Jesus told. 
And the part of you that's just said, I've already heard that, I know that, it's the part of you I really want to speak to. Now, I also want to, this is confession, want to confess that I can stand up here and say these things about love and truth and freedom. The things that are results of hours of study and writing and that sort of thing. And yet, when I go home, my wife says the truth, you're a jerk. <laughs> That's hard to hear. Right? Wouldn't it be wonderful if all the people who had access to the airways, prominent politicians, people in places of religion, had the same passion for self-knowledge as they seem to have in wanting to convince us of their doctrines. I'm reminded of this woman who walked out of church one Sunday and said, I loved your sermon. It applied to everybody I know. <laughs> the truth that sets us free is almost always a truth that we don't really want to hear. That's why I think Jesus said over and over and again, don't be afraid, but listen. So how does what you hear in here challenge you about how you think you are, things are, God is? And as we live into Jesus' vision for a new world order, we will discover that his goal was to turn people's lives inside out, upside down. Yes, 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 we agree with that. Not someone else's life, though. It's yours he's talking about. It's mine. And, and, and the realm he calls us to wake up to is not under our control. It shows up when we least expect it. It disrupts business as usual. It is always on the side of justice and forgiveness. And none of those things are valued in our culture. So the religion of no escape is not so much finding something as being open to allowing ourselves to be found. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. Thank you for being here, and see you next week. Thank you. <clears throat>